I have a seven-year-old, which is you know, not young anymore. But I'm struck as a mother by the way that it seems to be almost innate in children to be able to care for and imaginatively include every little thing in their universes into their narratives. So my daughter had a couple months where she made pets of every fuzzy that she found in the house, for example. Certainly every little bird, every little creature, every little rock, it seems as though children have the natural capacity to weave incredibly rich narratives that involve everything that they can understand in the world. And that as we get older, we need help to recapture that breadth of imagination and that depth of compassion that seems to come naturally to us when we're very young. The scale is the issue here, um, that they are still able to hold in everything that they understand or everything that they know and how they understand of the world that they live in. We are so capable of processing so much more than what's kind of within our field of vision. We get distracted, we have other aspirations and endeavor, we think big, we think far, we think back. But then maybe just to jolt you out of that circumstance to be able to, again, like a child, being able to see the world that you live in in front of you, being able to hold it all in. There's resonance in, in that, in thinking about the world in that way, to the way that we imagine children understand their world. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm History and Theory Coordinator and Faculty here at SciArc. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means we have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. This episode is on embodiment. First, we hear from artist Young Jun Kwok, whose work focuses on queer bodies, how they have been represented in art history, and how they form communities. Then, speculative architect and SciArc faculty member Jennifer Chen talks about world building and how design can flesh fictions into alternative realities. Finally, Dr. Sunita Puri speaks on dying, the unknowability of the universe, and the different ways of being embodied within it. This is the Ark coming to you from SciArc, Los Angeles. Act One. Okay, so I'm Young Jun Kwok. My pronouns are they, them. Yes. Or she, her. And um, do you have a preference one way or the other? They, them, or she, no, her? No, really, just whatever you prefer. I am so excited to be talking to you. Just to sum up some of your amazingness. You're an L.A.-based, multidisciplinary artist, and your work involves performance, video, collaboration, sculpture. One thing that I noticed seems to connect a lot of your body of work is an exuberant play with artificiality, with material itself, with what it means to be a mutable body and to be capable of continually fashioning and refashioning one's own image. You said, at some point I realized, I'm a material girl, I'm a material queen. 
what does material mean for you in your own work and your own life? Materials speak to me in a lot of different ways. I love to learn about the histories behind materials, how materials can tell their own stories and lead to learning about the history of another culture. I think about like the alchemical quality of materials, you know, how materials will change when they're combined or deconstructed or reconfigured in some way and how that works along with our bodies as well. There's a lot of possibilities within materials to transform or at least disorient the way that we view and think about bodies. Yeah, it seems like a lot of what you're saying is in fact so magical to think about every once in a while. Just how precarious and even constantly invaded our own bodies are relative to these materials that we conceptualize are completely separate from ourselves. My most recent project was uh, while I was the artist in residence in critical race studies at Michigan State University. And, you know, I was meant to do a kind of project that engages the community around ideas of diversity, but at a time during a global pandemic with stay-at-home orders and, you know, so few bodies actually on campus. And so I turned my attention to the kind of like symbol of campus pride, that icon and that exemplary body of the institution, which is the Spartan. And there was a huge statue of the Spartan exemplary body of like male physical fitness. So I made molds of the statue on site and I recast the statue in fragments and kind of what I call reverse casts. They're kind of like casts of the molds themselves. And so they, they're are concave fragments that um, rather than presenting like a whole body or just like another replica of the statue itself, what I'm doing is like kind of deconstructing the body of the Spartan, uh, presenting these fragments that are hollow, that are thin, that are abstracting the body. And they kind of like resemble fossils like you can see the impressions and all the details on the surface of of the spartan statue that otherwise go unnoticed and so these sculptures that i created the impression of a body and through its absence presents all sorts of open-ended possibilities to find other images to use one's own imagination to kind of complete the body yeah, it reminds me of that parable of the blind men and the elephant, where because they can't see the whole thing, mm-hmm. they're each limited to their individual experience of the part that they're touching. So they each come out with a very, very different imagination of what that animal is like. It's often told as if that shows the kind of the dangers of incomplete experience. Mm-hmm. But listening to you describe the Spartan project, it seems to me like you could look at it the other way around, that by disarticulating something and presenting it in fragments, and as you say, kind of evidence of absence, one is in fact massively amplifying the creative potential of the original object. Yeah, it's taking something that seems so high up, that's so rigid, that's meant to be you know, the original statue is made in bronze, 
which is really heavy. It's supposed to be this permanent kind of material that withstands the elements and, you know, and bringing it down to our eye level and making something that seemed so strong and powerful and making it something that's light and ephemeral and at our eye level that we're able to get really close with that kind of disorients us from our perception of what that ideal body looks like, you know, allows us to really look at it from different angles and allows for kind of like uh, imagination on the part of the viewer too. I want to ask you a little bit about Zina Zerner if I can. Sure. I, it Because you're not just a visual artist, I should say. You're also a performer and you're also a musician. You have a band called Zina Zerner. It's a mode of, of performing yeah. that is, let's say, drag, lip sync. Yeah, absolutely. My partner in Zina Zerner, uh, Marvin Astorga, he is a really skilled musician. But I was coming at it from a performance angle, from like a very real need to scream and dance and make connections with other bodies. Tell me about Mutant sure. Salon. Mutant Salon started off as a matter of necessity. And I moved here for grad school and I had like institutional backing. I had a studio on campus at USC and I perform and drag and didn't feel safe in my home, in my neighborhood in Koreatown to really get dressed up and kind of present myself as I wanted to. And I thought, why not make my studio into something of a dressing room? And I started playing Zena Zerner shows around town and met such an amazing community and supportive community of audience members and also other performers that were queer, trans women and POC and just people who were making work that was like really vital to the community. These performers didn't have studios, couldn't afford the kind of space that I was getting for free. So I wanted to like kind of open my space up and collaborate with these, <laughs> you know, people kind of share some of my own privilege, sharing resources, sharing our skills and stuff like that with each other too. When you're able to make a statement like that and say, let's pool our resources, let's have some fun, let's explore the space together. And hey, by the way, in the process of doing this, we're going to make our own space. Did it also help you embody the new Californian version of yourself? There's always this moment of great possibility when you move someplace new. And there's that moment where you get to kind of say, I'm going to put this side of myself in the front. Yeah, for sure. You know, and even just in the naming of it as, as Mutant Salon to that way of describing my own practice in a way. If artists are meant to create new forms of beauty, I guess I would align myself and my community would align ourselves with a sort of mutant beauty, mm -hmm. an alternative form of beauty to those standards of beauty that are accepted and kind of fail <laughs> a lot of us. Maybe we can talk about this a little bit because it's not unrelated to the concept of embodiment. You and I share one thing in that our childhoods were both defined by evangelical Christian communities. And I'm just thinking about how powerful that 
upbringing is in terms of a kind of disassociation from materiality and from embodiment, a kind of repression mm -hmm. of the body, a repression of the experience of living as an embodied self in favor of something deferred and also something thinned out, but also incredibly prescribed. How would you characterize your own experience of yourself as an embodied subject in that context growing up? First of all, there was like the sense of like self-abjection with going to so many Jesus camps throughout my childhood and literally like wanting so desperately to be saved and seeing myself and being really closeted about being abject, you know, about being wrong and wanting to be saved and wanting to be fixed. And there were several experiences with being in Jesus camps in like the wilderness and literally falling into like ditches full of shit <laughs> of like human shit in like open outhouses and stuff like that. Hard labor around animal shit and like kind of dragging giant crosses literally across, you know, fields. How old were you? My teen years, yeah. And in your teen years, something, something opened up for you. Depression and drugs and feeling lost. And in Jersey and finding others who felt the same way, finding a sense of community and closeness through art and literature. My parents were, were missionaries, so we didn't really do Jesus camps because we were like in an, an eternal Jesus camp yeah. in a way. But I, I understand the general arc. I know that for me, it was very much caught up in a, in a kind of disassociation from the body. And when I was finally able to come out of that, which I think for me in my personal situation was later in my life, then it sounds like you began to emerge. It was the community of people around me that seemed to be able to stand their own skin mm -hmm. that slowly began to expose me, I think just by proxy, mm -hmm. to being able to be an embodied self. So I wonder if, too, that, that larger sense of community and uh, self-transformation and this large sparkling thread through your work is allowing that freedom to be there for others, saying, here it is, come partake in it, it's there for you too. That possibility was opened up to me by other queer artists and writers, other thinkers like, you know, Julia Kristeva, who actually write about abjection and, and to see other artists and people who own their non-normativity as a, as a form of agency. Yeah, seeing myself as shit, though I may be covered in shit or something like that, you know, being able to see myself and others as beautiful in that way. And I think that Mutant Salon is a lot about that too, kind of creating a space wherein, you know, we may all look monstrous or, or we may literally be covered in trash, but we're all still beautiful because we make each other beautiful. And there's that radical affirmation of beauty within each other that I think is also, despite what the world around us may think about us. That was so beautiful. Stop it. It was, it wasn't beautiful. <laughs> 
You can find more on Kwok's work and exhibitions at their website, youngjun.com. That's Y-O-U-N-G-J-O-O-N.com. Next, Act 2. Jennifer Chin is an architect and designer working across buildings, installation, film, and performance. As a project leader for a number of the world's leading architectural practices, she has delivered a range of speculative and built works from the small scale to the monumental. She is also a member of our design faculty here at SciArc. Jen, I know that you would talk about your work as a form of world building. Can you explain what world building is? I would simply think about it as stories, how to encapsulate or embody, you know, stories into things that we design, be it objects, images, scenarios, environments, you know, something that you can hold in your hand to something that a space that you can occupy, a structure that you can relate to. I imagine that for many designers, the idea of designing without the myriad immediate constraints that come along with big chunks of material, narrowly defined project scopes and budgets, constituencies motivated by many other concerns, trying to do that would be a little terrifying. Perhaps because I have had experience in practice for, you know, 20 years of what I would say sort of real world sites with real world clients, if you like. I find this refreshing. (laughs) The wonderful thing about what I do or what I happen to be doing, um, whether by design or not, um, is that it's open-ended. It's as if you're an explorer, you know, discovering, you know, a piece of artifact from unknown period of human civilization. You know that it had a beginning or, you know, but you know that it doesn't have an end. It's still going, you know, like it's it's now transformed into a, you know, a cultural artifact or whatever it is that's sort of displaced from its original setting or time. And so it takes on a different role again. I mean, that's kind of the bigger picture stuff, I suppose. But I I really like to imagine that the stuff that we're thinking about embedded within a story, it's just part of the story that I happen to come in and capture. Would you give me an example of one of your stories? I'm interested in sort of lingering around the where, where technology meets you know, human behavior, particularly my focus or my interest is in the consequence of Anthropocene. And projects that I've done um, involves tapping into the technology and particularly the glitch and the flaws of those. And so one of those projects, there's a film that is uh, written by science fiction writer Tim Morn, directed by Liam. And so um, I was designing these costumes basically for a group of young people who we speculate and imagine to be um, factory workers that sort of, you know, during the day work in, this is in Detroit, and we imagine that this is in the kind of, you know, future destroyed where um, it's turned itself into a kind of uh, special economic zone. I'm designing the costume, but we're imagining that these costumes were designed by these factory workers where they're hacking to the system, where they're trying to find ways to camouflage themselves. So they could live out their fantasies, but they also know that they're safe because they are protected by these costumes that they've come up with, you know, as a response to the all-seeing, you know, all-controlling system of surveillance. 
It reminds me a little bit of the the true story of the drag scene that's depicted in movies like Paris is Burning. People would end up with houses full of haute couture, basically, Mm -hmm. specifically tailored to these famous drag queens. And the whole thing was this marshalling of beauty and culture and intensity and love in in the search for a family and a community. You know, I guess this is one of the powerful things about the kind of work that you do is that you end up never being able to escape the ethics of your own Mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. and being required to literally code those ethics into each product that you make and into Mm -hmm. your process itself. Mm -hmm. So the idea of taking software and mining it for glitches Mm. might be part of your actual process Mm -hmm. as well as the narrative that you're using that process to Mm -hmm. tell. I really enjoy the fact that I get to focus on a particular issue or particular process or particular mechanism. Then I could imagine how how people might react. It brings up for me maybe three ways in which your work Uh, and your position might challenge our typical definition of embodiment. First of all, there's the embodiment that you're speaking of in terms of artifacts. The fact that artifacts have this potential or even this tendency to endure beyond their original moment of making, whether those artifacts are physical or digital, they are still, as you said, designed. Then second would be the embodiment involved in the digital or the virtual. And then maybe finally, and probably most crucially, there's the idea of embodiment that exists in fiction. In the scenario of uh, digital or the virtual, I, I always equate it to light. We see light and shadow. We, we don't see the light itself, but we see the reactive, you know, the outcome of it, right? We see, we see services absorbing or reflecting light. In a sort of digital virtual construct, you exist in it more so, of course, now than ever, you know, without even being conscious of it, you know, all the kind of information or the, you know, kind of think about through particularly social media, they creep into our pockets, right, through our phones and through our laptops. So, you know, in some way, they're they're there with us, right? We, we, the consciousness that we're kind of building in the way we understand the world is completely through the virtual and the digital. On, you know, on the idea that science fiction stories in general give us, you know, alternative options, I think that's half of the story, you know, and the other half really is about being critical of what's happening now. The pre-ancient, the prehistoric, the indigenous of every culture where that was how they would communicate. You know, they, they would educate and inform their different generations is through storytelling. And those stories are often cautionary tales, really, but instructions or um, descriptions or, you know, a way to document the, the dangers, um, the fear, the endeavor, you know, of, of the people or, or, or of the people who were telling the stories or the environment that they were living in. That's how I kind of build up my knowledge of Thomas More. Is that in Utopia, it is a direct reflection of the problem and the, of the society of the time, right? And because he loved 
you know, the nation. He loved his king. He loved his people so much that he wanted to present. He wanted to place all this problem, but it's not just pointing out the problem. In a way, he can then let us or let the people then see what the alternative could be. But a lot of it is about pointing out the problem that he was so saddened by. Right. So,、um, and I think that tradition has sort of been—it's it, part of storytelling. It seems like that's what every creative project that that really has an impact and that really touches people and challenges their imaginative scope does. I think that's one of the things that's so cool about the work that you do. By its nature,、mm. it has to be projective, no、mm. matter how dystopian it might、mm. appear.、Mm-hmm. It has to also be projective、mm-hmm. because somebody's got to sit there and design the elements within it,、mm-hmm. and somebody has to process the current situation that might have led to that projection, right? So, yeah, that that's、um, very beautifully put. I understand that recently you've returned to an interest of yours that dates back to your days at the Bartlett、mm-hmm. in the UK,、mm-hmm. which is a notion of embodied. Planetary energy and how we might reimagine、mm-hmm. our narratives、mm-hmm. around that subject.、Mm-hmm. It seems like now more than ever, we need dramatically different ways of understanding our relationship to our environments. Could you talk about that a little bit? When you start looking at the planet from outer space, no matter where you look, you you, you don't get the full picture. And so, literally, if you were if we were to sort of take ourselves out and be able to see the full picture. And this is going back to Carl Sagan, you know, pale blue dot, the image that was taken from Voyager One, which, by the way, now is the furthest, you know, man-made object in the entire universe from us. And the kind of the sudden realization of just how fragile our planet is, the pale blue dot, to be able to think about the bigger picture. And so, my interest is the science of remote sensing, to think about understanding the world. Again, through these kind of satellite images or imagery out of space, to look at the Earth as a you know not not as just documenting and mapping the changes on the planet, but actually thinking about those as culturally transformative artifacts themselves. When you see an image like that, what what stories does that tell? So if you know if we imagine all the people living on Earth living their lives, and we can tell individual stories, but then if we were to try and tell a story of the collective. Of the billions of people living on Earth, the idea is, you know, the whole is surely greater than some of its parts. It will, it will give you a different picture. It will dif- give you a different sort of idea and scale and、um, an understanding of the planet. What is Planet City? So I work with Liam Young a lot, and he's he's my partner in life. Sometimes collaborators. So I work on on a lot of you know the films and the projects that he does. So Planet City is an ongoing project spearheaded by and conceived by Liam that reimagines what if ten、uh, billion people, the entire population of the Earth, surrender, come together and live in a hyperdense metropolis, and then surrender the rest of the world to wilderness for it to recover. So what might that look like? You know, we're very familiar with. The picture of the Earth as it is, right?、Um, the blue marble. You know, we, we're very familiar with those images that come from the International Space Stations and various satellite images, uh, uh, very various kind of remote sensing satellites. But to use this as a medium to speculate on the future of planet, well, I find remote sensing really interesting 
and wildly exciting because, you know, remote sensing is satellites that are um, flying around outside the Earth in kind of low Earth orbit and flying around the Earth, taking pictures of the Earth. So it, it has sensors that will take pictures through different wavelengths. And it's the combination of those. And oftentimes they are data and images that, you know, invisible to our human eyes. And so when you look back through time lapse, which I'm sure everyone has seen, you can really see the changes played out right in front of you. And oftentimes when people first see, you know, how the retreating glaciers or, you know, the, the decreasing forest in the Amazon or the scars and incisions that we're creating on the surface of the planet through mining and so on, that, you know, unless people could see them, they didn't really understand, you know, the, how much we've actually done, the impact that we've actually created. You know, on so remote sensing is basically used to monitor the Earth in that way, and gives us a kind of a different understanding, other than terrestrial-based kind of data collection. Yeah, that's one of the things that strikes me very forcibly about the pieces of your work that I've seen is a real sense that there are multiple agencies involved at any moment in time. It's not just the people and the way that they interact with people, but it's the people and the way that they interact with their circumstances, with their environments with their backdrops. It's also the way different pieces of that environment interact with each other. Mm. And that sort of broader spectrum of agency is one of those hallmarks, I think, of what you were describing as the Anthropocene, recognizing that we dwell in a territory that has been indelibly shaped by people, but is not solely embodied by people and that there are a myriad of other scales of life and non-life action and stasis that we ought to be able to hold in our imaginations and in our ethics as well. Absolutely. Yeah, again, beautifully put. That's a very big picture, but also poignant and beautiful way to think about embodiment in the context of what we're talking about, for sure. It goes back to understanding that we are just part of it. We're just we're just one part of a bigger system. And that for whatever reason, we are able to have visible impact on the planet, but we are still just one part of it. And yeah, like you said, to be able to imagine all the rest of it at different scale at different time, surely can only make our understanding of the way we live more meaningful. You can learn more about Jennifer Chen's projects at j-chen.net. That's j-chen.net. Finally, Act 3. Dr. Sunita Puri is Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Southern California and the Medical Director of Palliative Medicine at Keck Hospital and the Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center. Her writings have appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, Slate, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. So Sunita, I'm struck by the title of this extraordinary book about palliative medicine in the Western context, That Good Night. And of course, that's drawn from a longer quote, do not go gently into that good night. It strikes me, therefore, as incredibly poignant that you chose that as your title in a book on palliative care. Could you speak a little bit about that? Definitely. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast, Marika. It's a real honor. 
I chose this title kind of paradoxically because I think the phrase used in the poem, That Good Night, is so poetic and it's also somewhat ironic because when we rage against the dying of the light, then is it really a good night? Is it really a good end of life? And I think that that was part of why I titled the book that way is because I wanted people, once they read it, to really examine what does a good night mean to them? Is it raging? Is it fighting? What do those terms even mean when we use them, when we talk about disease as a battlefield and our bodies as part of that battlefield? It seems like this has been a process of not just intellectual discovery for you as a doctor, entering this field, testing the bounds of this field, but also a kind of personal and creative set of discoveries. Actually, what we say and how we say it and how we articulate our thoughts and our fears is almost at the heart, in a way, of your field. The way I usually describe it to people is that in palliative medicine, words are my tools and communication is my procedure. So just like there's a way for a surgeon to take somebody into the operating room and, for example, take out their gallbladder, there's a way to have these conversations with people. And we're never taught that in medical school. And I think the lack of preparation around having conversations with people about what gives their life meaning, what animates their days, what would they want for themselves if time is shorter than we would like it to be, without being prepared and looking at language as a procedure to be taken seriously, then many of us experience a tremendous amount of distress Because instead of talking openly and honestly about what someone may be going through and hearing what they have to say, we kind of proceed down a treadmill of medical tests and procedures that may not match what somebody wants for themselves. And I think that because I was always a writer and an obsessive reader, that I came into medicine attuned to communication and interested in communication. I had no idea that I would end up in palliative medicine, but I think for a writer, it's a really good field because when I'm sitting with a patient and family, I am listening very closely to the words they're using and how they're framing for themselves what they're going through. And then I have to use language very carefully to echo the frame, but also to challenge the frame when needed. So if somebody says, I'm a fighter and I want everything done, in residency, I would have said, okay, so that means I have to be super aggressive and provide everything from chemotherapy to a ventilator to dialysis because that was what I thought everything meant. But now I move towards kind of excavating the meaning of those words So what does everything mean to you? What does that look like? When you say you're a fighter, tell me how you experience that. Because we need to understand how words are used and the deeper meaning 
behind them to really have an honest and vulnerable conversation with people facing serious illness. We know it is inevitable that we will have times of great vulnerability even before the final capitulation to the dying of the light and to death. But we don't, we're not trained to do that. We're not given the language, as you said. We're also not given, I, I would think, we're not given the emotional bandwidth to talk about the inevitability of mortality. I think that that blind spot in our culture and even in many cultures around the world has led to an incredible amount of anguish and suffering. And I think it does so in a couple ways. One, I was recently sitting with a family whose uh, mother was on a ventilator dying of complications from a very challenging surgery. And when we talked about who their mother is and what she would say if she were listening to me talk about what's happening to her, it was very painful to see their own pain about not knowing what their mother would say and not really knowing what she would want and not knowing how she might respond to our conversation or the questions or concerns she might have. So I think when we don't talk about these things and we leave our loved ones in the position of guessing, that's one type of suffering that I think is at least somewhat preventable by having these discussions and acknowledging that mortality is really one of the things that defines the human experience. I spent a lot of my childhood in other countries and I, I moved back to the United States when I was 16. And I moved to an area of the country that I'd never lived in before. And I was really struck by the mechanical quality of medicine in this advanced, rich country. That somehow I felt as though when I had interactions with my American doctors, who I expected to be so fancy, <laughs> um, I guess in a way they were because they had lots and lots of tools at their disposal, endless tools even, they didn't really even look at me. And I can only imagine how that would be amplified into your experience at the end of your life, where you are, you are down to, the, to the, the workings of the body in a very transparent way, and, and how limiting it would be to have all of your hopes and fears and desires come down to little things like my mouth is dry, or I, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Yep. And I think the system of healthcare and the way we practice medicine under the constraints, especially time constraints that we're under, doesn't allow doctors to be their most humanistic self. You combine with that all of the increased scrutiny of what we're documenting in the medical record, and I think to save time and make sure that we're capturing things accurately, a lot of people are on the computer as a patient is speaking, and it's, it's not what it should be at all. And I think that we're just under the gun in some ways in a system that doesn't prioritize keeping people well or giving them humanistic, compassionate care because insurance companies don't care about that. So the type of medicine I envisioned practicing when I got to medical school 
felt very mechanistic. It felt very removed from the patient I was supposed to be taking care of. And in the book, I wrote about how until I did, until I was exposed to palliative medicine, I literally spent more time on a computer than at my patient's bedside. And that to me just felt like not the reason I had gone into medicine. And it's really easy for us to go down the, the railroad of saying, okay, this person has this symptom, I'm going to order this thing. This person has this, I'm going to do a scope, whatever the case may be. But then pausing to think, how is this procedure going to change the bigger picture for this person? Am I going to act on the results I see or am I just doing this because I can, but not because I should? So for example, it would be not uncommon for me to see somebody who has kidney failure because they have end-stage cancer and they're dying. And it would also not be surprising to see like a young person in a car accident whose kidneys are failing for a reason that might be reversible. For both of those people, we think about dialysis. But that procedure means different things to those two people in those scenarios. Do we dialyze somebody who is dying? Do we dialyze somebody who, with a series of operations and rehabilitation, may actually return to a semblance of their life? And that's where we lose our way. And I think that's where being on a computer, not looking at the patients, not being really allowed to practice humanistic medicine because of the constraints we're under, I think that's also a part of the suffering that all of us go through. And so all around, it just seems like an unsustainable system because in part, we're doing things that sometimes just make no sense. We're doing them because we can, not because we should. But I think also because people get burned out and quit when they're constantly exposed to these scenarios and don't have the tools to navigate them. I guess we should stop actually and, and explain that to our listeners. What is palliative medicine? So palliative medicine is a subspecialty in medicine that focuses on treating the suffering of a patient and their family when they're facing a serious illness. Or it could be the patient with end-stage cancer who has a lot of pain, a lot of nausea, can't move around their home because of the symptoms they have from the treatment or the cancer. And it means talking to that person about what they hold dear and what sort of care they would want for themselves as their cancer progresses. And so we really treat suffering by treating physical symptoms like pain, nausea, vomiting, insomnia, anxiety, and depression, among other things. We treat emotional suffering. We treat spiritual suffering and what, what we call ex existential suffering. So what does it mean that I got this diagnosis when I'm 25? Why would God do this to me? You know, these sorts of big deal questions are things that we listen to and support people through as well. And palliative care is not hospice. Palliative care is also not care provided in the last hours of life. Those things are very different. We have a team of a social worker, nurse, doctor, and spiritual care, and we all see these patients and families either together or separately, but we have a team approach because no one person can do all of that in one sitting. 
you can get palliative care right alongside other treatments like chemotherapy or dialysis. So you're not making a choice between treating a disease and finding comfort. That's a really important thing people need to know because a lot of people think if I choose palliative care, that's giving up, that's not being treated, that's kind of being abandoned. But I really want people to understand that that is not the case. Palliative care has always been associated in my, my memory with hospice as though you couldn't get access to that without kind of accepting the fact that you were in your last period of life, however long that was. And I remember, so for many years in my old life as, a, as an architect, I worked with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and was helping them with long-range planning and with architectural services. And of course, palliative care is an important component of cancer care. And I, I remember looking at it and thinking, even in my own limited capacity as an architect, holy crap, we are designing these spaces all wrong. We have no knowledge as humans, as facilities directors, as architects, as engineers, you know, mechanical engineers, da, 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 of how to actually care for the embodied human. We don't know. Nobody ever trained us for that. And instead, it's almost like these spaces are designed for the benefit of disinfecting. It's almost like the entire space is designed around ease of cleaning. And I'm not saying that it's not lovely to be in a, in a house or in an apartment or in a bathroom that allows for ease of cleaning. It's just such a weird thing to focus on. Yeah, and I think there are people in design and architecture who are interested in kind of redoing hospital rooms, long-term care facilities to kind of address exactly what you're saying. Helping people transition to wherever they go next is not really something that people look to as something just as sacred as birth. And so getting like a comfort care suite in which you can die peacefully in the hospital, for example, with a nice big room and nice furniture, that's very hard to come by because A, a lot of times it comes down to finances, and B, I just think we're not there as a culture to have that sort of space built to recognize and appreciate death in a building that's supposed to be all about life. Let's talk about your tradition and your parents who loom so large in, in your book. And they loom not as these kind of mythical figures, but as complicated, loving, fully fleshed out characters. There's a very moving passage where you talk about the moment that you first realized that people died. You said you were five years old. And your father very beautifully explained as you were looking at the literally the dying of the light uh, in the sunset, that this is the way of the world. Yes. And I, you know, my parents are both from India and they grew up very poor and both were kind of in circumstances that they knew from a young age that they wanted to get out of. And so they worked really hard at their education. Um, even when my mom got into medical school, they didn't have the money for the entrance fee. So a neighbor whose own child didn't get into med school 
somehow had saved money and gave it to my mom. And they interpreted these sorts of things happening as God's hand in their lives. And so they're very much people of a very deep faith. And part of the faith is really kind of understanding that everything in life is temporary. The things that are permanent and worth focusing on are God and your soul and your soul being part of something eternal. When I was sitting with my dad at that time when I was five and watching the sunset and wishing that the colors could just stay like that all the time, my dad saw an in, in inroads into that bigger conversation and told me, you know, the plant over there is going to die one day. I'm going to get old and die one day. And so will you. And I didn't totally get it when I was five years old. And I think that conversation ended pretty quickly. And then we just moved on to something else, but it stuck with me because it's a very powerful message for a kid. And I am very grateful for that because I don't, I don't fear dying. Mm -hmm. I, I fear being murdered. (laughs) I don't want to die that way. Don't get me wrong. I, if I got a serious diagnosis tomorrow, I would be devastated. It would be really hard, but I wouldn't want to rage against the dying of the light. And I would like to think I'd have a good sense of when to stop treatments that would not serve me so that I could spend time with the people I love you were so thoughtful and deliberate and completely generous about what you chose to talk about in this book. So there are moments of really deep, almost kind of naked revelation when they served the purpose of this really important message that you're trying to get across, which is that good night is coming take a look at it, don't be afraid of it, and think about how you want it to be. So the overall message is there is a moment when your notion of your body and what it means to be embodied will irrevocably change. Could you talk a little bit about the experience of writing this book? I really did not want this to be a book about me, even though it's memoir. I wanted it to be about the kind of kaleidoscopic view of death and dying and change that's a part of our lives and how I struggle and still struggle to contend with it, but how I've seen so many people around me contend with it. There was one in particular that stood out to me, not just because of the poignance of the tale itself, but because I was imagining what it would be like to try to write that down. And I'm talking about the woman that you call in the book, Alice. Yes. So Alice was a person who I took care of very early in my palliative care training. She was young. She was in her 30s. And she had a very rare form of a lymphoma that had been treated and cured once before, but was back with a vengeance. And she was in and out of the hospital and then came back in so sick that she was on a ventilator and dialysis and medicines to keep her blood pressure from falling very low, dangerously low. And the thing about her situation that was so difficult because we knew there was no way out of this situation for her. And yet 
she was wide awake on the ventilator. And it was, I think, for the ICU team and the family, very disturbing. And they didn't know what to do because this woman was dying no matter what we could do. But she was still fitting the definition of what it looks like to be alive. And so this is a dilemma that has come up a lot in my practice where people are sick. They're not so sick that they're mentally gone, but they're sick enough that we can't get them off machines. And so what do you do? So I would sit with her and ask her questions and she was fully mentally intact. She could write. It was hard for her to write because she was so weak, but I told her, our whole team told her what was going on and the dilemma that we were in. And she just kept saying, I want to go home. And this is, I think, also the tragedy of these conversations happening way too late is that she could never go home. There would be no way that she could come off machines and safely get home. She, she would have died en route. She would have died en route. She would have died before we even got her out of the hospital because of how much support she needed from the ventilator. And so had that question been asked the first time she was sick, she would have had some time to think about it, prepare for it, potentially talk to her family about it, but she was robbed of that opportunity. So eventually what happened was we did tell Alice everything that was going on and she made her own decision to get the tube out. And she was given the right meds to keep her comfortable and she died shortly after the ventilator was taken off. And the tragedy for me, well, this whole situation was tragic, but I couldn't be with her at the end because nobody paged me. So the last interaction I had with her was she loved Sprite. So I went to the cafeteria and got her some Sprite. And around the, the tube that goes into the throat and connects you to the ventilator, the endotracheal tube, we just kind of dotted Sprite around there. And I think they did that a bit after she'd come off the ventilator. And you chose to put that story in this book and to relive that kind of experience, the anguish of that experience. What was it like to write about it? It was, for some of these situations, very difficult because you kind of have to relive what you felt and how powerless you felt. But I think that going through the writing helps you to reflect on what you've learned since then, too, that part of why people who I see even just last week in the hospital who are totally awake on a ventilator are only awake because of the ventilator. They're not awake on their own. And helping people to see that was something that I had been able to do well after this story. And so even in the writing of it, you kind of get to see, say to yourself, wow, if I was in that situation today, I would have had so much more wisdom to bring to it. And this was the first person who got to teach me how to get there. So you get to honor your patients also in writing about them and make them in a way immortal. You can follow Dr. Puri on Instagram at Sunita Puri MD. That's S-U-N-I-T-A. P-U-R-I-M-D. The ARC is a production of the Southern California Institute of Architecture. 
I'm Marika Trotter, the host and executive producer. Co-production by Kathy Huey and Our Story Productions. Our technical director is Phil Logan. Music by James Thomas Marsh. 